On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit Downs with your host, Jenny Anchando. Hey everybody and welcome to Second Shot. This is a Second Shot sit down. I'm Jenny Anchondo and gosh, the idea with this is that we find people from all types of business, all walks of life, all different backgrounds and find out about what it took for them to really take a second shot at life. And our guest today is Ann Chow. She is the CEO of AT&T Business. Hi Ann, welcome. Hey there, hey Jenny, it's so great to be here with you. Oh man, I've been looking forward to this. I have to tell you, I have been wanting to interview you ever since I did an introduction for you. Probably it had to have been more than a year ago in South Lake at a women's empowerment conference and you spoke. Yes. And I thought, you know what? I've got more questions for this woman. We have got to talk about her story. So let's, let's kind of start at the beginning though about your childhood. Tell us about where you grew up and, and what your childhood is like. Yeah, no, thanks for asking. So I think, uh, you know, um, we all start with the foundation of where we grew up and how we grew up, so I appreciate this. Um, I am a second-generation American, and I am the child of immigrants from Taiwan. My parents came here in the 60s. Uh, they came here to the United States because this is where hope lives and where their dreams could be realized, where their past uh, did not dictate their future. So I grew up uh, in a very sort of suburban, middle-class environment in New Jersey. Um, you know, I was born in the Midwest, but we moved to New Jersey relatively early. Um, in my childhood, and I grew up um, on the East Coast um, in a very classic immigrant upbringing. You know, we did not have a lot as relates to um, um, money uh, mm -hmm. or means. My dad was the first in his family to go to college, and he came to the United States to go to grad school. Uh, but, um, you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful upbringing where my parents infused in my brother and I the value of education, the importance of service and giving back, and um, you know, a, a grit that I think is so uniquely um, inherent in, um, you know, in first, second, and, you know, third generation Americans is just kind of inherent in who we are, right? That we sure. constantly just kind of keep moving forward. So, yeah. so that's a little bit, yeah. That's beautiful that they instilled that in you, and, and you're right. That's just such a streamlined immigrant story that you hear over and over, and, and really, um, it's, it's an advantage when a child grows up in that type of environment. I'm curious to know what what did Anne want to be when she was a little girl? Were you saying, I'm going to be the CEO? Did you want to be something else? Yeah, so believe it or not, I had this dream, um, you know, growing up on the East Coast, I wanted to be a professional musician. Mm. Um, I went to the Juilliard School of Music, the pre-college in New York City in Manhattan. So I went there for seven years from the age ten, ages of 10 through 17. So I had this dream that I wanted to perform in Carnegie Hall. Wow. Um, and as I got older um, and went further in my training, I realized that music um, music was my passion, but I didn't want it to be my profession. And so in high school, I had to make a pivot to figure out, okay, now what do I want to be when I grow up? And honestly, I had no clue. I just leaned on the fact that I was good at math and science. 
Uh, my dad was an electrical engineer, and I thought, okay, well, you know, the job market looks pretty good four years from now uh, based on the facts and data, and I'll just jump right into electrical engineering. So that's a, a little bit about what my aspirations yeah. were. Um, you know, when I was uh, when I was younger, just jump right into electrical engineering. Just no big deal. You know, I think that's a common struggle that people have, though, when you do have a really strong passion for one thing, you do sometimes yeah. think, well, that should be my profession. And it doesn't always work out that way. And I think that can be a source of discouragement. Did you ever look back and think, my gosh, I went to Juilliard. Maybe I should have pursued music or, you know, do you ever, do you ever miss that component? Um, you know, not not really. I think one of the things that, um, again, is, is part of, I think, the immigrant story is this very mm -hmm. pragmatic nature, right, which is we, um, I like to call it immigrant paranoia, actually, when I describe it to others who uh, may not be familiar with the dynamic I'm talking about. And that is this feeling, this, uh, you know, this this voice in your ear constantly that everything could be taken away in a moment, right? And so, what you have to lean on is your education mm. and your skills. Um, and you've always got to be looking for that return on investment, right? And so the ability to be financially independent and not be a burden um, on my parents and be able to really create a life for myself and ultimately my family was always a really big motivator. So I never looked back on giving up on that dream of, you know, wanting to be you know, a classical pianist uh, at, at Carnegie Hall because I knew that I was not good enough to make it my profession, right? And there were just too many variables that even if I was great, which I wasn't, I was good, you know, but I was not great. Uh, there were just too many variables outside of my control um, that I wanted to focus on something where I could drive the outcome of my destiny um, or at least increase the odds of success. So that's, that's really how I looked at it. She she went to Juilliard, but she wasn't good enough, guys. She has this standard of excellence that is very, very high. Uh, when we talk about second shots, I think about this this story and, and your background where you had a very successful career, as I understand it, in IT and in engineering at AT&T, but you had this desire to work in the sales department and, and to transform. Talk about the, the struggle that existed in that space and wanting to make that transition. Yeah, sure. So one of the you know, one of the things that I tell my parents they did so well when they came to this country and they uh, you know they they raised my brother and I is that they raised us to believe that we could be and do anything that we wanted, right? And so we we had this in us that you've already pointed out this drive to um, be our best and to just keep pushing, right? Just keep pushing forward to realize your fullest potential. And what I saw, uh, what I saw starting in college, because I had, I had an opportunity to do a, a bunch of internships. Mm -hmm. What I saw was um, that Asians, right? Asian Americans were pretty heavily stereotyped into technology fields, right? So when I looked at the job market, I saw, um, you know, many Asians in technology roles. Um, and I thought, yeah, you know, hey, look, I am proud of my STEM background. But I wanted to move into more of the business environment, right? I wanted to be in a place where business decisions were made, and they're not always made in the IT department or in the network department. Um, and so I set my sights early on in my career. While I did start, uh, you know, in network architecture, um, mm -hmm. you know, process management, operations management, more technical roles, I always had this aspiration um, for you know to sort of break that break that stereotype, if you will. And so. You know, one of my early second, you know, second shot stories is that, uh, you know, I had a bunch of mentors tell me early on in my career, and if you want to, you know, if you want to pursue general management, 
you really need to get yourself in front of the customer and sales is such an important role in every company because it's where revenue flows, right? It's where growth right. comes from. And unless you have that experience, you'll never really know what it takes to uh, make a business thrive, right? And so I tried to get into sales. Um, I actually tried five times over the course of three years, um, interview after interview, rejection after rejection uh, before I got in. With and, the same uh, company. So like same, you get yes. rejected, but then you still got to go to work there. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, and it's, um, uh, look, this is another part of my, my um, you know, my, my foundation, my story. The risk that my parents took to come to this country um, far outweigh any risk that I might take in the business environment, right? And that, that has sort of been, in, in, you know, infused in me. And so failure after failure, I will tell you the first couple of failures, because I, one of them was, I'll, I'll never forget this interview, I actually had a very senior executive at the company tell me, Anne, you will never, ever get into sales. You know, and when I said why, he said, because you didn't start there and therefore you have no idea what it's going to take to be successful. You have no idea how to motivate salespeople because you've never carried a bag, right? And I pointed out to him, by the way, because uh, I was even a little sassy back then. Um, I pointed <laughs> out to him a couple of people that I've seen get into sales that didn't have sales to start out with. And, and he actually said to me, do you really think you're as good as they are? And I said, yes, I do. But I appreciate your feedback and I will take that under advisement. And you know, the first couple of failures were, um, Jenny, you know, I, I was angry. I was sad. Uh, but after a couple of rejections, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to show them. I'm going to show them that I'm going to knock down every barrier that's put in front of me. You know, you haven't led a large team. Okay, I'm going to go do that. You haven't dealt with customers seven by 24 in a job. Okay, I'm going to go get a job that does that. And, you know, you know, surely over a couple of years, I knocked down the major barriers. Of course, I couldn't knock down the one barrier of you've never been in sales. Sure. Uh, but I found, a, you know, a manager, a leader, ultimately on my sixth try, uh, who took the risk on me. Uh, because she saw something in me that um, that she was willing, you know, to say, "Hey, look, you've had these experiences. I think you would bring something unique and different to the sales environment." And um, I finally uh, got my first sales job, and from there, I would tell you, uh, you know, the shape of my career took uh, took a very different arc. Um, I found that I liked it. Mm -hmm. I found that I was really good at it, and it it has set forth in motion. You know, a career now 30 years late, you know, 30 years into it now. I've, I just celebrated my 30 year service anniversary of ATT wow. that has been built on the foundation of customer relationships. And for that, I am extremely grateful, but also extremely proud. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you should be proud because here's the thing. So many people are in that exact same position you're talking about where, you know, when we graduate from college, we are children. We are, yes, we are. 18 years old, you know, picking a major, maybe 21, maybe 24 when we, we leave school. It's just you're in the infancy of your life and, and learning your desires and learning your passions and learning your skill sets. So um, let, let's hear some advice from your perspective for the person who is in one company, wants to stay in that company, but wants to be seen in a different light. Um, because so often the solution is to leave. It's yes. to go someplace else so you can see, be seen in that different light. But um, gosh, you hate to leave a, a good job just because you're kind of holed in or boxed in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my advice to, um, to those folks would be, and by the way, this is uh, what I would tell every mentee of mine, because we each face this, right, at some point in our career where we 
want something different or we want something more and that different and more may not necessarily be built on the foundation of what we have up until that point, right? And I think this is part of the journey of discovering where, what are your strengths and discovering and figuring out what your passions are. So the first thing I would say is, look, if you are assessing an experience, if there's an experience that you, you desire that's accretive to your resume, meaning it gives you something you don't have, it'll be a great, it, you know, it, it can't be a bad thing, right? So if you have your sights on doing something different, whether it's functionally, whether it's learning a different part of the uh, product or services portfolio, whether it's moving to a different area because you wanna experience that part of the culture of, of your company or organization, um, the first step is to study, right? To study those people who are in there, who are very, very successful. Um, and you've gotta realize that your desire to penetrate and get into that part of the business you're up against people like I was in sales who have experiences and who've grown up in that part of the business. And so you've got to learn about it in such a way that you can then bridge your set of experiences into what they're looking for so that, so that you bring something uniquely different, right? Because you will not bring a long track record of experience in that particular thing, but you're going to bring you know, the, the beauty of your own background, your own diversity, your own skill set and experience. And it is up to you, though, to demonstrate that that is valuable. And some okay. of the tips of how to do that are through your network. You know, you should lean on not only your mentors, uh, but also you know, be incredibly proactive with your networking. The way you learn about other organizations is through discussion with other people, mm -hmm. right? People who have been successful in there, people who have left there, people who are currently in there, you know? And um, ultimately, a you know a, a dissection of those organizational dynamics, and dare I say, um, Jenny, the the politics of the organization um, to understand that because that's what you've got to work your way into, right? In a very very purposeful um, in a very purposeful way. And it sounds like part of it too was somebody believing in you. That that it's like you just need that one shot, that one yeah. person to say, you know what. Let's see what Anne can do here. And I'm, I'm going to guess that was part of that relationship building on the front end. Yeah, it absolutely was, Jenny. I mean, it, it, it's so true, right? We have an opportunity to change the trajectory of anyone, right? Whether it's in our community or in the work context by just one decision, right? One conversation, one person, one relationship at a time. And so while you may not be able to build, let's say, total sponsorship in an organization that you've never been part of, you can build your brand, you can build your reputation, you can build your network, right? Um, in very purposeful ways, so that when your name does come up, right, it is understood and known that you have interest, that you have something unique to offer, right? But that takes work, right? That takes a very purposeful, very, very regular, um, very disciplined approach um, to networking um, and I think one of the mistakes that people make in this area in terms of networking is that, um, you know, they, they, they're not structured about it, right? They're not strategic about it. They also don't necessarily view that, um, you know, that uh, it's up to them, right? They kind of wait, you know, they wait to be asked about, um, you know, hey, let me, let, me, let me schedule time with you. You know, anyone who wants to come and get on my calendar, I, you know, I am um, always open to it, but also I'm very clear that, hey, look, don't, don't take offense of the calendar bumps, but persevere, right? You know, we will get connected right. um, in some way, shape, or form. 
Uh, but you've, you've got to, you know, you've got to be persistent in that, you know, and I think so many people, um, so many people give up, right? So many people mm-hmm. give up early because they say, oh, I don't really want to bother you. I don't want to, you know, disturb, um, you know, the set of priorities that you might have. Um, and that's a mistake that I see a lot of people making, right? Is that they're too, I don't know, maybe a little bit too passive, too deferential. Yes. Yes. I hear I hear what you're saying. Um, It reminds me of that Zig Ziglar prime the pump analogy from way back in the day. I don't know if you ever saw that, but it's like, just keep going and eventually the water will flow. Right. Right. That's right. It's just like your luck is created. I believe that. Mm -hmm. Right. Luck luck is a little bit serendipity, but it is there is a science to luck. Right. There is a science to creating your own luck by increasing the probability. This is where you can tell the engineering maze coming through. Yes. But yeah, right. But you can increase the probability of your success uh, by the choices you make and by the relationships you choose to forge um, and fortify. Certainly. I think that a big part of us being able to see what we want for our futures is being able to literally see it. Most people watching this, listening to this, uh, me, you know, we don't have access to a CEO of at and business. So can you tell us what your schedule is like? What is your day like? What are the, what's, what are the, I think we've heard about some of the fun stuff you do, but what are some of the challenges? Yeah, yeah. So um, a, a day, especially in 2020, right? So in this yeah. extraordinary year of 2020, uh, the day is incredibly unpredictable, largely, right? You know, a, a big part of my day is spent, um, you know, working with clients. Now that all has to be done largely remotely, you know, and that offers its own challenges. Supporting my people, right? Supporting my people in terms of engaging with them on what are the barriers they're experiencing, what are the needs uh, that they have, um, and so much of my role, I believe, is really about the people and setting the tone for the culture. There is, of course, a part of my day that is, um, you know, set in whether it's you know inter- internal discussions around strategy, um, you know around decisions we might make in the short term, you know around certain deals or certain areas of investment, right? How we might allocate our our capital or our precious resources, and um, but for the most part, um, you know my my day is driven by my clients, um, my my people, and my culture, right? And I find that if you are really working hard um, to optimize outcomes and maximize impact. In those communities, uh, you know, great business results absolutely uh, come as part of that. In a non-2020 world, right, because eventually we're going to get out of this and get back to normal, what will your schedule look like family-wise? I'm, I'm, I'm always curious to hear how women, women and men, really both, you know, how, how, how anybody balances a really demanding career with, um, you know, personal interests, family time, if, if you yeah. even are able to have personal interests. No, for sure. Look, I I think that what what this pandemic has shown us, first of all, is the importance of social connection and the importance of absolutely having a boundary between our personal and professional lives. Right. We we, um, you know, many people are working virtually, of course. Right. The majority of of many businesses are working virtually. And that blend um, has become even more forefront. Mm -hmm. You know, I would tell you, Jenny, that I am a person who has always lived by this mantra of I actually don't believe in balance. Because I believe, and I learned this from um, one of the, uh, you know, one of my favorite bosses, um, which you know, who I was fortunate to work for um, early in my career, and she used to say, "Hey, look, you know, and you don't have a personal life, and you don't have a professional life. You have one life." Mm-hmm. And I think that's so powerful. This year has shown us that. So, in a non-COVID environment, what will my day look like? Um, it will look um, pretty, 
similar, right? It, it'll just be executed differently, right? I look forward to the day when I can be back out in the market in a much more fulsome, um, regular way uh, to actually visit, uh, you know, with my clients, you know, where, where it makes the most sense together in, in our decision to be out there uh, with, with our partners, to be out there with my people who are spread all over the world. Um, you know, because we, we, we all live in local communities, right? In, in towns, in cities, in states, in countries, in territories. And we have seen the power and the importance of connection, not just in the big sense, but on a very localized sense, right? In terms of what we can do and should do to help businesses thrive um, of, all, of all shapes and sizes. And so that's what I anticipate. I do believe though, Jenny, that in a um, post-COVID environment that my hope is that each of us as leaders has even greater clarity mm -hmm. on what our priorities are, right? Whether they're personal priorities or professional priorities, um, this year has, I think, really brought to the forefront how we've got to be really purposeful mm -hmm. at setting those priorities and boundaries and really sticking to them because the rhythm of the day, the technology that enables us, mm -hmm. right, to do this, um, sometimes does not work in our favor, right? And so it's really up to us to, um, to to do that, right? To set the tone of our of our life, of our day. Yeah, absolutely. So you recently wrote this book, Unconscious Bias, and you know, it could not be, you know, this is the kind of literature people are really seeking out right now, thank goodness. Talk about what that book is about and why you thought it was important to, to produce this for people. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for bringing up the book. And uh, the book is called The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias. I am one of three co-authors. I'm, I'm a co-author with Pamela Fuller and Mark Murphy, um, who are um, you know from uh, Franklin Covey, and I serve on the board of Franklin Covey. Um, you know, so let me first talk timing and why the timing of this book is uh, a little bit of serendipity in terms of its importance. You know, we are coming off of a year where we sit at the nexus of three crises, as I like to say. You know, it's the pandemic, it's the economic recession, but it's also systemic racism and social injustice, right? And we, as a society, are having an, a very important awakening of what that might mean um, and what the implications are, right? And and the most drastic of implications are, um, you know, Black Americans, um, you know, are, are dying um, at, a, at a disproportionate, um, you know, rate. And there are systemic issues, right, that exist in all facets of of community, right, and in our society. And so the purpose of this book is not specifically actually um, to address racial unconscious bias, but to address the topic of unconscious bias um, in total, right, in, mm -hmm. in total. Um, and um, you know, we wanted to put together a book that was um, you know, insightful, enlightening, but pragmatic, right? What do I mean by that? Look, there have been some amazing uh, books out there, right, that have come out this year. Uh, you know, I was just recently asked which one, you know, which book is my favorite, and of course, I've got to say a little bit of ours, right. of course, one, right? But, but you know, I, 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 I pair it with you know, Cast by Isabel mm -hmm. Wilkerson, right? Number one uh, nonfiction uh, bestseller book of the year, right? Made Oprah's book list. I mean, just of the year, and and what I think is so powerful in uh, in that book and why it's relevant with our book is that we start understanding the uh, the origins, right, of, of, our, of our bias, the origins of systemic issues which may exist in various facets of our society, whether it's in the healthcare system, the education system, 
um, you know, in the criminal justice system, if you will, right? And what our book does is it surfaces the topic of unconscious bias in a way that acknowledges that bias is part of the human condition. Mm. You know, and I, I want to give kudos to at t because bias is actually a topic that we um, surfaced. In fact, it is a, it is a course that um, I worked uh, with RT University to develop years ago, and we actually taught it across, uh, you know, across our management population. Um, and it is a topic that is so relevant and critical now because unless we're willing to unpack and reframe our biases, um, we cannot actually move forward, right? That which sits under the surface, that which we don't even know mm. is part of how we show up, right? In the decisions we make, in the words we use, right? In the people whom we surround ourselves with, right? Our biases shape all that, both conscious and unconscious. And so this book is a very practical guide of unpacking the topic of bias, helping offers, uh, offering to individuals and leaders of, from all walks of life, tools and exercises and activities of how to be better, right? How to create high performing teams um, by quite frankly, starting with yourself, right? I mean, each of us has bias um, and each of us um, you know, has an opportunity to be better, right? And our biases can be neutral they can be uh, detrimental or they can be helpful, right? And it is just really important to surface this topic of unconscious bias because it, it, it exists everywhere. It is not just a racial issue, it's a functional sure. issue, gender issue. I mean, it's, it's, it's all of the above and it's normal, right? And I think that's one of the big revelations I've been told is, uh, you know, there's some comfort in knowing that mm -hmm. we all have it, right? And so we've got the opportunity to work through it together. So last thing, I'll, I'll wrap up with this, and I can't get off, you know, the, the chat with you without asking about how how you think we should introduce this concept to our children. Um, is there a certain way, a certain age when you start those types of discussions, and, and what should those look like? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think to have those discussions uh, straight away is so important. You know, my uh, my children happen to be, um, you know, interracial, multicultural, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, it, it's a it's it's a beautiful thing. You know, when I think about how we raise them, they are now college age, right? So they actually would probably rebel in the, in the <laughs> idea of being called children, but they'll right. always be my children, right? They'll always be of my course. children. But, but um, you know, we 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 address this topic fairly early on, right? Because it was going to be visible, right? And of I think course. this is the this is the whole thing about race, right? Is that um, it is a phenomenon that is based on visual differences, right? When you peel it back, humans are 99% the same, right? But yet, um, how this country has, uh, you know, been shaped, how other parts of society, other parts of the world have been shaped, right? Um, visually, right? Visually, um, our biases are often fed by what we see, right? And so. I think it is so important um, to address the topic of, of race and equality and equity uh, with uh, you know with, uh, with with children early on. You know, I'll will just cite one you know one um, uh, one you know, one book that I came across. Uh, yes, that, please. Uh, that is that is a that is actually a board book, right? And so uh, you know, I remember loving the board books of my you know that that we read with my children, and I still keep them, quite frankly, to this day. Uh, you know, Dr. Ibram uh, Kendi. Um, who wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist um, and a, a bunch of other books, uh, recently also published this board book called Anti-Racist Baby. Oh. And, it, you know, and it goes through just nine, right, in, in simple children's terms, uh, what, what being an anti-racist 
means, right? And it and it and it, it means embracing, you know, uh, people of all colors, right? And and you know that is one simple resource out there, right? Of which there are numerous ones in terms of how we might raise our raise and support our youth, our children, and our next generation of leaders um, to be and do even better than we have, right? Because the one of the key realities is that every generation that um, that comes forward, you know, I'm part of Generation X, um, and every generation after Gen X is more and more diverse, right? And for us to really unleash the power of leadership, whether it's in the corporate environment, whether it's in public sector, whether it's in in the you know in the media, whether it's uh, in nonprofit, right? Um, we have to unleash the full power of who we are, and that means that we have an obligation to each other um, and to humanity to actually embrace each of us as our own unique individuals, right? And I think this is something that we need to continually work on uh, because we're we're just simply not moving fast enough, right? Yeah. I mean, we're still talking about glass ceilings and bamboo ceilings. We're still talking about disproportionate amount of representation in certain areas that do not reflect our community or our customers or the future workforce. So we've just got to keep working on it. You know, we've just got to keep the dialogue going. I hear you. And Chow, thank you. This has been a beautiful conversation. It's just been a real gift to be able to learn from you and learn about your upbringing and the way that you've taken a second shot at your life. And um, congratulations on all of your success. Thank you so much, Jenny. And uh, here's to you and here's to everybody out there. You can always have that second shot, right? So Thank go for you. it. Thank you. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. I so appreciate the time. So I wanted to give you guys again the information on her book. It is The Leader's Guide to Unconscious Bias, How to Reframe Bias, Cultivate Connection, and Create High-Performing Teams. You can follow her on social media at the Ann Chow, and you can follow us secondshotpodcast.com and on all social media platforms second shot podcast you also know you can see us every thursday on morning after have a good one everybody